It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Summer is over, and the Brussels bubble is back in action, teeming with diplomats, bureaucrats, and yes, even journalists. But this year's rentrée, as it's called here in the EU capital, is gearing up to be unlike anything we've experienced for a while. Protests over soaring energy prices and the cost of living have erupted across Europe. Dozens of people in Italy burned their gas and electricity bills in protest of skyrocketing costs that they say they simply cannot afford. Germany hatte die Linke für Montagabend zu Protesten in Leipzig aufgerufen. An estimated 70,000 demonstrators gathered in Prague last weekend. And most people expect that this is only the beginning of a very difficult few months for the EU. I'm Suzanne Lynch, and I'm your new host of EU Confidential. Today, our Politico team unpacks what exactly the EU is trying to do to solve its energy problems in the short term. All the other EU countries said this week, it was, we're basically waiting for Germany to make up its mind. And the long term, given Russia's sustained war in Ukraine. You know, this isn't going to resolve the larger issue of very high energy prices over the long term, and that is going to be a big challenge for both consumers and business. And later, Canada's ambassador to the EU, Eilish Campbell, on why so many European leaders are visiting Canada. And we discuss her recent tweet that went viral, which revealed just how far diplomacy still has to go when it comes to gender equality. Look, what motivated you to, to post this tweet? This is you are calling out um, sexism, essentially, in the world of diplomacy, that you called this senior EU official and he assumed you were not the ambassador because you, you were a woman. Yeah, I think it's so much bigger than the tweet. So I have, you know, been mistaken for my own assistant several times. And I think it was like on the fifth or sixth time where I was like, you know, enough is enough. Like we, we got to we got to say something about this. But first, let's dive into this week's big issue. And that's energy. On Wednesday, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen unveiled a new proposal to deal with spiraling energy costs. We are facing an extraordinary situation, not only because Russia is an unreliable supplier, as we have witnessed over the last days, weeks, months, but also because Russia is actively manipulating the gas market. Our Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnitschnik is joining us from Berlin. Hey Matt. Hi there. And I'm also joined in studio by Jakob Hankavella, our Brussels Playbook author, whom I'm sure you read every morning. Hi, good to have you here. Hi, Suzanne. 
Now, Jakob, you have been writing all week in Playbook. I'm sure lots of our listeners get Brussels Playbook in their inbox every morning. You had a great scoop earlier on in the week. You've been covering the story. There's been lots of meetings and EU energy ministers are meeting in Brussels this Friday for an emergency meeting. What are we expecting with that meeting? We're expecting them to back very fast action to bring down the cost of electricity and potentially gas. Um, They're all under a lot of pressure to act very quickly. And that's why they've decided uh, that they want emergency measures within days, uh, they were saying. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a surprise this week, wasn't it? Because Ursula von der Leyen went to the European Commission press room on, on Wednesday lunchtime to make an announcement with new proposals from the Commission. That was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? You know, she was under a lot of pressure because Council President Jean-Michel had said publicly that we cannot wait for Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech for her to come out with proposals. Which is next week. week. It's a real set piece of the European calendar. And in a sign of how much pressure politicians are feeling, they're saying we cannot wait for next week. We need to get this going ASAP. And she reacted probably to that, but also to a lot of pressure from national capitals where there have already been protests in countries across the EU this week. Mm, Yeah, we might get to that with Matt. I mean, this proposal that she announced, now I suppose it's important to say it's a non-paper, so it's not a legislative proposal, it's a kind of a starting, an opening salvo in this debate. But there were five points that uh, she set out in this speech on Wednesday. Let's drill down into some of them. I mean, what do you, what have you identified as, as the most important of those proposals? The most important in terms of really intervening in the energy market is the idea to put a levy on the price of electricity. Mm on all the producers that are actually producing with a big profit right now. That's renewables, that's uh, nuclear energy, and that's also coal power stations. They're all producing at much cheaper prices than what they're selling the price at. And her idea that's backed by a lot of EU countries is to tax that difference, put a levy on it, um, she was and saying, redistribute that money. And redistribute, yeah. So she is saying, I think she used the word, these producers are, are making profits they never dreamed of. The low-carbon energy sources are making in these times, because they have low costs, but they are high prices on the market, enormous revenues. Revenues they never calculated with, revenues they never dreamt of, and revenues they cannot reinvest as far. These revenues do not... Really so the way the market works is that the price of electricity is basically based off gas. The gas price is very high. And then those companies that don't use gas, use, as you say, renewables, are now in for very tasty profits. So they're trying to hit those. That's one issue. What else has she proposed? She also proposed something that sounds less sexy, but that could actually work, which is uh, mandatory reductions in consumption. Mm. Uh, because as you say, that what dictates a very high price right now is gas. Um, But these gas power stations often only come online during demand peaks. So if we get those peaks down, then you would use much less gas and that would make electricity much cheaper. But that would have to be mandatory, which a lot of EU countries are opposing. That's right, because earlier in the summer, there was a decision to introduce voluntary cuts of up to 15%, but crucially it was voluntary. What the Commission now is saying is that this should be mandatory. So let's see, as you say... There's already some opposition. And then, I mean, anything else that hits you from this proposal? Right. So another very big one is von der Leyen's proposal to put a price cap on the price of Russian gas. Mm. That means basically you, you ban EU companies from buying Gazprom's gas if it's above a certain price. 
Putin already warned that if that happens, uh, they're going to stop exporting gas. So it might be a way to turn the tables on Putin. It's a bit of a gamble, though, isn't it? This is It's a big gamble, but also what a lot of diplomats uh, from a lot of countries that we've asked these last days are saying, they're saying we're expecting Putin to cut the gas anyway this winter. So why why not do it ourselves? And I think von der Leyen herself said that actually Europe has, its level of Russian gas that it's using has already fallen. Because at the beginning of the war, if you looked at the imported gas, 40% of it was Russian gas since a long time. Today we're down to 9% only. When do you think we will actually get something a bit more substantial on this? I think we can already expect something substantial tomorrow, so Friday. The hope is that there won't be too much fighting and that ministers can at least agree to these measures proposed by von der Leyen. The gas price cap, I think, on Putin is going to be a hard one because there are a lot of there are few countries that are very opposed to it. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's worth saying, you know, the European Union has been quite late in terms of this intervention. You know, it's, it's a bit of a U-turn by the Commission. For This has been decades. Totally. Yeah. It's a huge U-turn. They, yeah. they did not want to get involved in, in the energy markets. What's changed? The prices have gone up. That's what's yeah. <laughs> changed. And politicians are feeling the pressure, people on the street. Basically, this discussion started more than a year ago. You, you and I wrote about it more than a year ago when Spain uh, went to the European Council and said, energy prices are too high. We need to do something at the European level. Back then, most countries said, you guys are crazy. We can't touch the market. The market works well. It's normal. Consumption is up. Demand is down. So prices are higher. Deal with it. Mm. Um, that was the Germans especially, but also the Dutch. A lot of the kind of and Nordic the free countries. Free market. Yeah, you know, there, there, there was some kind of arrogance in, in, yeah. in, in there and kind of, well, guys, you, you April, to, don't fix it and let's not intervene. Yeah, exactly. You have to suck it up, basically. Yeah. Now that the prices are even too high for very rich countries like the Netherlands and Germany and even Sweden, they're all suddenly calling for exactly those measures that we could have had a year ago. Yeah, very interesting. I think Spain uh, would be forgiven for saying I told you so. Um, listen, Matt, bringing you in there, I mean, what's the reaction in Germany? Uh, we saw the Chancellor Olaf Schulz announcing a pretty big, I think it was a 65 billion euro package last weekend. Tell us about the perspective in Berlin. Well, I think what's happening in Brussels is kind of a mirror image of what they've been pushing for in Berlin. And Schultz laid that out over the weekend with the 65 billion package and also said they wanted to have uh, price caps and, and, and that type of thing. And that Germany was prepared to go forward alone if the EU couldn't agree quickly. And we've seen similar steps in other countries like Austria where the prices have also basically trebled for for gas over the past year. And they're up uh, where I am four times where they were last year for power. So this is, you know, really, really painful. And it, it is, of course, very difficult for households. And that's the pressure most politicians are feeling immediately. But I think what they are particularly worried about is the effect that this is going to have on the economy and on on businesses, on German industrial businesses, which have relied for so many years on relatively cheap Russian gas. Now that is, is gone possibly forever. And I think that this is in the German context, what really has a lot of people worried as we head into the winter. And it's worth remembering that we're, we're not into the winter yet, obviously. And as difficult as things are now, politically, they're bound to get worse if something isn't done quickly. Yeah. 
I mean, you make a very good point there, Matt. Like a lot of the uh, commentary around this has been about consumers, you know, taking off the lights in the evening, putting on an extra jumper to to save, uh, you know, energy costs. In fact, energy intensive business is one of the big problems here. And it's a problem for some of the biggest businesses in Germany, for the chemical industry, for all kinds of manufacturing that need a huge amount of power. If you just take one example, BASF, the big chemical maker, they use as much power in a year as the country of Denmark. So, you know, that gives you a a sense of the magnitude here. And even though they produce a lot of their own power, uh, they also are are feeling the pinch from these uh, price increases. And the dilemma, I think, for a lot of German politicians and certainly for this current government is, you know, how can they convince these big companies from not putting their operations abroad? Because they do have other options, uh, whether it's in Asia or North America. And if you can produce in other parts of the world for a third of what you're paying in Europe at the moment, then, you know, that is an option I think a lot of people would take advantage of. So tell us about some of these protests that have been happening. Yeah, that's right. These are, right now, you probably describe them as fringe uh, parties who are organizing these protests in Germany. It was the far-right alternative for Germany party and the left party, the Linke party, as it's called, in German. And they're trying to reprise the so-called Monday demonstrations from 1989 that led to the downfall of the uh, GDR, which is slightly ironic because the left party is actually descendant of the uh, German East Communist Party. Nonetheless, there is a sense on the political fringe right now that this is a big opportunity for them because there is so much frustration about the way the government has uh, handled the energy crisis, uh, not just in Germany, but uh, throughout Central and Eastern Europe as well. And you're seeing more and more people go onto the streets. And I think this is another reason that the Germans and others were racing to put this type of deal together, both the the aid package, the $65 billion, and also at the European level to come up with measures to, you know, really counter the narrative that's out there on the street now that the politicians are failing here. Because this is something that everybody in Europe is going to feel, is already feeling in their pocketbook with the rising inflation. Um, I think the longer term problem is that this is something that is not going to weigh. They are both in the capitals and in Brussels trying to deal with an acute problem. But, you know, this isn't going to resolve the larger issue of very high energy prices over the long term. And that is going to be a big challenge for both consumers and business. And then you're going to see even more people out on the streets. I mean, this is the thing. This is an issue affecting every single prime minister. Um, We've also got a few elections coming up this month that I think are going to be very closely watched. We were speaking to people this week as everyone arrived back in Brussels. They're worried about the Italian elections later on this month, for example. So prospect of a right-wing government and a possibly far-right party in that government. We have elections in Sweden over the weekend. Again, a far-right party there could be part of a government. So I think this political 
imperative to do something. You know, that does focus mind. Now, I mean, Jacob, as we said there, it's one of the reasons, really, that the Commission was forced to act. But do you think, I mean, look, let's face it, we know here covering the EU, we've 27 countries, but sometimes, you know, decisions are made by certain countries. I mean, we had a phone call, for example, between Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and Olaf Scholz on Monday, Monday evening. I mean, do you think that was significant in this kind of like jump to, jump to action that we saw by the Commission. This it week. was, and a lot of other countries watched that very closely. Also the deal that Macron struck with uh, Schultz where they basically agreed to exchange electricity and, and swap electricity for gas and France is going to reactivate some of the old pipelines to send gas to Germany if it needs it. I think, you know, everybody was waiting for Germany mm. um, because Germany is this kind of mammoth in the EU, also very close to von der Leyen, of course, the commission president who's German. And was so dependent on Russian gas. So dependent on Russian gas, the biggest energy consumer by far in the EU. But also the big problem is that Germany's coalition takes so much time to decide. And, And this was something that all the other EU countries said this week. It was, we're basically waiting for Germany to make up its mind. And it kind of did last Sunday. They, they had a big meeting between the coalition leaders. They said, OK, we're going to back this proposal from von der Leyen uh, on that levy on electricity. But, you know, the discussion is moving much faster in Brussels. People are now asking for a decoupling um, of energy which, from electricity. Which wasn't uh, included in the von der Leyen five-point plan. I mean, this is the idea that the way electricity is priced, it's priced off the price of gas. And some people want to break that link. Now, the temporary measures that von der Leyen have outlined will effectively do that. But there is no suggestion in her five-point plan to do this now. No. She, I mean, she, she, so she's kind of pushing that discussion, kicking that can down the road, saying we'll yeah. get there, but maybe in the long term. Yeah. Um, and a lot of countries are saying the proposals that the commission has proposed now are fine, but they're not enough. Yeah. They're not actually going to lower people's bill sufficiently. Yeah. And we need to do that decoupling now. Um, so that, that's going to be actually a, a very interesting question this Friday. Will countries endorse the Commission's proposal or will they call for further measures that go beyond what the Commission proposed? So let's see how this plays out. A lot to go. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this throughout the next few months. Definitely, Um, yeah. We are expecting a lot on energy in next week's State of the Union address by von der Leyen. Um, But thank you for joining us, both Matt and Jakob. Thanks, Suzanne. It was great to be on. Thank you. And coming up, we explore the EU's relationship with Canada in conversation with Ailish Campbell, Canada's ambassador to the EU, based here in Brussels. Campbell explains whether her country can help solve some of the energy issues facing the EU, as we just discussed, and reveals the backstory to her tweet that went viral over the summer, calling out sexism in European diplomacy. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations 
responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is travelling to Canada later this month. Her trip is happening hot on the heels of a recent visit by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Why Canada? Well, among the main issues European leaders are trying to address is, surprise, surprise, the EU's energy problems. And they are hoping places like Canada can help. Canada has been investing heavily in liquefied natural gas, or LNG as it's known for short. And Europe wants to make a business case for the country to export its LNG to the continent. Here's what Canada's ambassador to the EU, Ailish Campbell, told me and my colleague Barbara Moons, our senior trade correspondent, about what Europe is trying to accomplish with these visits. So, in fact, we've had Chancellor Schultz, and then we had NATO Secretary Stoltenberg in Canada, and now President von der Leyen, all on themes of security more broadly. Energy security, our work on supporting Ukraine, uh, Canada and the EU, of course, taking refugees uh, and supporting Ukraine financially, and uh, the longer term opportunity for Canada to become a clean tech and clean energy supplier to Europe. Yeah, I mean, we heard Olaf Scholz announce some deals with uh, Justin Trudeau, particularly looking at the possibility of LNG exports and in the field of hydrogen. Obviously, Germany, like every country here in Europe, is desperately trying to diversify its energy supplies. However, I mean, Canada is limited when it comes to its ability to export energy. Isn't that right? You don't actually have an LNG export terminal at the moment. In fact, we do. And so all of our energy exports are going largely to two places. First is to the U.S. So we have massive energy infrastructure north-south. And we have increased supply to the U.S. so that the U.S. can use some of their facilities to export to Europe. But we are an LNG exporter on our Pacific coast. It is Asia who has signed long-term LNG contracts with us. So we're supplying Malaysia, Japan, Korea with LNG from our Pacific side. Now, we need a long-term customer on the east side in order to do the investment that I think is possible. So you're saying you need a customer on the east coast. So that's a kind of, a, I suppose, argument that you need the demand to provide the supply. But there has been a kind of delay. There's been some stalling in terms of planning for LNG terms. Am I right? On the east coast. I mean, Canada needs to maybe improve what it's offering in terms of export infrastructure. Right. So I'll say that, of course, we have an incredibly robust planning process that includes environmental regulation and, and overviews and engages our provinces. But with long-term customers, we're able to execute on that infrastructure. And I, I don't think it'll surprise you, you know, we are trying to, we will build infrastructure that's sustainable and environmentally sound with Indigenous partners for the long term. The visit also comes at a point when the EU-Canada trade deal CETA has been provisionally applied for about five years. There are still a number of EU countries who haven't ratified the deal yet. How impatient is Canada getting on this point that it's taking so long in the EU to get this deal ratified? Sure. Well, let me say three quick things. The first is that the deal is provisionally in force. The second is that Canada has ratified and brought into force the provisions. And really what's happening now is an EU process. So again, all those pieces of the agreement uh, which are working 
uh, and where we've seen a 30% increase in two-way merchandise trade between Canada and the EU since the deal was signed. And I think most importantly, stability on things like food, pharmaceuticals, machinery, equipment, even during COVID. I mean, really secure, trusted, strong supply chains. So the EU and its member states should take as long as they need to get the deal right. We'll keep working with the commission. Um, And uh, the Netherlands is the latest country to ratify. And we're certainly engaged very deeply in uh, what is essentially, again, a, a German process that may be the next member state to ratify the agreement fully. I mean, one of the other big uh, themes of our time now is this awful war in Ukraine. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a bit more about, you know, has this been good, if you like, a, a positive for Canadian-EU relations, or is it still more, you know, NATO? That's a fantastic question, Suzanne. I, I think I just want to go back, though, to the invasion of Crimea in 2014, because Canada committed in 2015 even more deeply to training the Ukraine military. So we've trained over 33,000 Ukrainian military service people in Ukraine. And we've been joined by some member states that includes, uh, I think, most strongly Poland, but also Sweden and others who have joined the mission. And that has created incredible ties and awareness and knowledge between, first of all, Canada and Ukraine, but also EU member states. I don't know that many Europeans know we have over 1.4 million Canadians of Ukraine origin in our 38 million population. So ties between uh, ourselves and Ukraine are very strong. But of course, ties between Canada and the EU uh, are only becoming more robust. And that uh, there's a NATO dimension to the security and defense partnership. But as you know, Ukraine is not a NATO member. So this makes its uh, identification as uh, a candidate country for the EU essential. And it's also where we've joined together with the EU on things like uh, civilian support, support for refugees, financial support. The rebuilding of Ukraine is, of course, going to be a, a massive piece of work for the two of us to do together with allies, including the United States and the UK. Um, just shifting gear a, a bit, Ambassador, um, I, I'm going to read you a tweet that uh, you sent. It's, it's here in front of me back on July 19th, uh, earlier this summer. So I'm paraphrasing, but reading uh, from my screen here. So the tweet goes, is it 2022 or 1982? A kind of a grimacy, squiggly face beside it. Me. Hello, it's Ambassador Campbell for bracket senior official. Senior official. Good. I will hold for him. Me. It is the ambassador. Senior official. Yes. Please put him on the line. Me. This is the ambassador. Hashtag equality. <laughs> now, as I, as I look here, um, it has had over 26,000 likes, 2,400 retweets, millions of views. First question I have to ask as any other journalist, are you going to tell us who the senior European official was? No, I'm not. And I had to try. Good good try. Good try. <laughs> but but maybe look what motivated you to post this tweet. This is you are calling out sexism essentially in the world of diplomacy that you called this senior EU official and he assumed you were not the ambassador because you you were a woman. Yeah, I think it's so much bigger than the tweet. So I have, you know, been mistaken for my own assistant several times. And I think it was like on the fifth or sixth time where I was like, you know, enough is enough. Like we got to we got to say something about this. And it's just it's time really to look at how power is diversifying. We've got to check our unconscious biases. We've got to open our minds. Clearly, it's it's not about this tweet. It's just struck a chord mm. uh, about, frankly, everyday sexism. Mm. And, uh, you know, in Canada, we have now 50% of our ambassadors are women. 
that number is more like 25% uh, in EU member states. So the assumption is still that when you have senior level ambassadors, there's going to be largely a male dominated table. Now that is changing. And that's the conversation we have to talk about. And I think the challenge for us as diplomats, who are supposed to be diplomatic, and build bridges, and find areas of commonality is how to kind of call out what is, we hope, a changing world of power, yeah, and increasing diversity while still getting our work done. This city is teeming with uh, diplomats from all over the world. From, and in a way, you kind of lifted the veil on those day-to-day conversations that happen at a senior level. Um, I mean, did you get a bit of pushback for that? Or did people, do you think most people appreciated you calling out this unnamed official or? I will say this, the, the responses uh, really speak for themselves. I think women were like, happens all the time, glad we're talking about it, and let's just talk about it. Let's just, you know, and we'll move on, and we'll keep, you know, getting our work done. Um, but I think if we don't talk about it, we're really in danger of backsliding. And I'll, I'll just highlight uh, the Women Political Leaders, which is a, an NGO group here in Brussels, but works globally, has a Reykjavik Index for Leadership that talks about how there has been really no increase in levels of female participation and the public's views on increasing numbers of women in leadership positions over the last five years. In fact, we're in danger of backsliding. Mm. So I think we've got each and every one of us in whatever professional walk of life we're in, I think should feel comfortable naming issues of what I'll just call everyday sexism and finding positive ways to kind of, and I use humor, you know, it's sort of like, okay, uh, you know, it's actually, uh, it's the ambassador and uh, we'll move on. But uh, I think we have a real opportunity as female leaders to talk about this. Yeah, but I suppose what you're talking about there is culture. I mean, here in Brussels, I'm sure Barbara would agree as female journalists. You know, we are, throughout my career, particularly in the world of when I was a financial journalist in economics, I found that all the time you were overlooked. People didn't assume you were the journalist. It was very, very male dominated. So I'm wondering in your world, you know, you are a trade expert, you're an economist, a PhD from Oxford. Do you feel that it's pre-male dominated that whole kind of finance and trade side of things? or, Or is it just more of a general issue in terms of representation? Well, certainly in terms of sectors, finance uh, at the most senior levels, we have gender representation, but also intersectional challenges. I mean, we're not just talking about representation of women. We're talking about diversification of power across all vectors, uh, including people of color, LGBTQ and others. And the opportunity here is to draw on all talent. I'll go you one better. It's the defense sector, I would say, that's probably the most sticky. Um, But again, that's where we have to be intentional and work on this with now I'm coming around to hard targets because I'm just tired of waiting. Yeah, I mean, look, a great point to end on there, the need for the EU, I think, to be more diverse. Thank you very much, Ambassador Campbell, for joining us. Thanks so much. And before we go, it's been a big week across the Channel with the passing of Queen Elizabeth and a new UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Be sure to follow our coverage at politico.eu and check out our sister podcast from London, Westminster Insider. So that's it for this week on EU Confidential. If you haven't done so already, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to say our goodbyes first, but if you want to get to know me as your new host a little bit better, stay tuned to the very end for a little bit of fun. Thanks this week to our editor, James Randerson, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, who you'll hear from next. And thanks to you for listening. What about the accent? Tell me about the accent. 
Well, I'm I'm from Ireland, as you may have guessed from my accent. Uh, I was previously a reporter earlier in my career for four years in Brussels. Uh, came back in 2021. I couldn't stay away. And what's one thing that the listeners may not know about you? I can give you an example. I've heard, Suzanne, that you like a bit of a bop, as you call it. Well, I mean, in my previous life, I have, um, I did nearly uh, pursue a music career. And my claim to fame is that I did uh, spend a summer singing and playing in an Irish bar in Nashville, Tennessee. But journalism called me and and here I am uh, by way of a PhD and uh, stint as a business journalist and foreign correspondent in Brussels and Washington. And you have a very talented family because your brother actually also created the new music for EU Confidential. Yes, um, keeping it in the family here. Yeah, my brother Vincent, uh, my my little brother, he's a he's a composer, a musician, very talented, if I may say so myself. Um, it's great to have him on board. What stories are you looking forward to diving into in the coming weeks? What can our listeners expect? Look, it's shaping up to be an important few months for the EU. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is continuing. We're past the six-month mark. Um, and I think there are serious questions still for the EU about how they handle this. Um, there are really some big issues coming up in terms of energy, energy supply. So that's one of the big issues. The other issue will be there's a lot of interesting elections coming up. We've got the election in Italy in September. That's going to be a big moment for Europe at the end of the Draghi era uh, and who's going to be the prime minister there. Um, It's going to be a big, big moment for Italy and for Europe. So that's something we're going to be watching closely. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 